Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to a new episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and as always, here with me is my best friend, co-host, and a man I will definitely back if he tells me that he's betting on himself, Patrick. I won't be in Vegas, but you can bet on me. So, there we go. I like it. I like it. These days, you don't have to be in Vegas to bet at all, unless you're in Washington State. In Washington State, we don't have DraftKings and FanDuel yet, unfortunately. We have to, like, go to an actual Indian reservation and do it on their land in a casino. I'm anxiously awaiting (laughs) that to change. But that is not all that's special this week. In fact, we have looked forward to this for a long time. Joining us to talk about Ben Affleck's latest directorial effort are the amazing gents from Cinematic Underdogs podcast, Paul Keelan. What's up? I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for inviting us. And Jordan Puga. What's up, everyone? Uh, Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, it's the first time we've gotten to have you on the show, Jordan, or maybe I should say Air Jordan. We have our own Air Jordan that we brought in for this episode, folks. You see what we're doing here? Yeah. Keep it real. That was on purpose. Uh, But yes, we're we're pumped to have you guys. Uh, The reason primarily is because, well, I should say we've always wanted to do an episode with you guys, and this is a perfect kind of crossover event between our two podcasts. Because, as I mentioned, you guys are called Cinematic Underdogs. You guys have a sports podcast where you are a sports movie podcast. But I wanted to ask you, what is your relationship like? Because I think you guys have a similar story to Patrick and I, where you knew each other, you started podcasting. And what is your podcast all about? So tell us how you guys got into this yourselves. Oh, you're pointing to me. When don't when you point to the screen, it's actually pointing to Patrick. Heads up, Paul. <laughs> I'll go ahead and take this one. <laughs> yeah, so Paul and I are actually uh, childhood friends. Is kind of how we, well, kind of. That's how we knew each other. We grew up on the same block um, in Southern California and grew up playing sports. Um, that's one of our biggest ties is sports and music. But we grew up playing soccer, hockey, baseball, what what have you. Um, even, you know, the other sports like skateboarding, rollerblading, all that stuff uh, we grew up doing. So um, that's our tie to sports together. Um, how do you think we came to the – how did we come to the idea of doing it for a podcast though, Paul? Yeah, I mean it was during the pandemic when we started and we had shot the idea around. I believe the first time we shot it around, we were at Back to the Beach. I think we were just sitting on the sand at a music festival and uh, chatting about, hey, let's start a podcast because we live now pretty far away. So it's a cool way to keep in touch. I think the main difference is between us is like most podcasts are like somewhat newer friends and we've known each other since before we could speak. I mean, we have baby pictures together. We were born six days apart on the same street. And uh, our whole childhood was just playing sports, really. I mean, we did everything that kids do, but our whole neighborhood was based around sports. We had a hockey net on the end of our cul-de-sac every single afternoon. We had basketball courts, you know, the ones with like sand on the sidewalks. 
we played on the same soccer teams. We played on the same roller hockey teams. We just did it all, the whole neighborhood, but especially me and Jordan because we were the same age. Jordan's dad was often our coach. So if you listen to our podcast, we often bring up his dad and some of like the lessons he would teach us and just like his love for movies and some of the movies that he would show us as kids as like, you know, his sport movie greats. Um, and so it's just a really cool way, uh, I think, for us to just take a lot of our nostalgic interests and memories and and put them into something new um we both still like sports a lot and we both love movies a lot um so it just seemed like a perfect marriage of all those things yeah i think those are two conversations we always have too growing up even as adults right what's what's going on with this movie what's going on in the sports world and like just the idea of just like taking those conversations and just you know throwing them out there have other people join us it's been a blast doing the doing our little podcast Well, that's awesome. I I love it. Patrick loves it. We've both been on the show before. It's something that is near and dear to our heart as well. We love sports movies and uh, documentaries, and you guys cover just a whole gamut of anything related to sport. Uh, And so, yeah, please check out Cinematic Underdogs if you have not yet, listeners. All right. Well, that's Jordan and Paul. So let us go ahead and jump into... Our episode, I'm going to quickly tell you, we are going to spoil the heck out of air. So if you didn't already know that Michael Jordan ended up with Nike, well, sorry, I just told you. Uh, Yeah, this is a biopic, you know, spoiler warning. Okay, whatever. We've given it. If you want to go see the movie first, you should. That's my recommendation. Okay, well, the first thing I want to ask you guys is, is air a sports movie? (laughs) Because (laughs) it's obviously about a basketball player and a shoe company and how they came together. But I kind of found myself in a little bit of a flux when it came to this. And I wanted to go around the room and see what everybody's opinions were on this. Patrick, I'll go ahead and and kick it to you first. Where do you land on this? Do you consider this a sports movie? Um, No, I don't because I think it's like a tertiary sports movie. We talked a little bit, Last week in our episode on Bang the Drum Slowly about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's criteria for what makes a good sports movie, and I don't use his criteria to sort of sum up all of my, like, this is or this isn't. So one of the things is that we see highlights, yes, and for Sonny, the main character, he is essentially a talent scout looking for new talent to come in. But it's not for a team. It's for a company. It's for endorsements. And while that's part of the sports world, I can't really get around the idea that sports sort of becomes a tertiary idea in this movie. It's really about brand. It's about personality. It's about becoming a legend. It's a, and You could even say it's not really about Michael Jordan, but it's about the journey to get this big thing. And he becomes kind of the, the idol that is sought after, but it's not about him necessarily. Although the back half of the movie would beg to disagree with me. The fact is I didn't see any kind of like moments where sports in terms of like the actual act of sports became the thing that drove or became a factor. It was really just informing what I think we were already getting ready to watch, which is a biopic about a shoe company. Yeah. What about you, Jordan? You agree with that? I'm going back and forth on this one because part of me as I'm watching it was thinking this is very much also just 
it's kind of a based in just office and work, right? This idea of finding fulfillment in your job uh, was a big part of this, obviously, in the umbrella of Nike and the and the legend. Um, but also, there's an interesting like deconstruction of the legend as we know it, and like a reminder of what the NBA was at that time. And I think that's the way they sprinkle sport into it for me pretty frequently, where you're just captivated by, again, the legend. And then that that, that deconstruction kind of, like I said, sprinkles it in to where I, I think I'm going to call it a sports move. I was bouncing around with it ahead. I was kind of thinking, like, it was it reminded me of office space at some time, except, like, instead of you hate your job, you come to love your job, right? It's that moment okay. of, like, we know Nike now today, and, like, a lot of it was the idea that Nike's just this corporation that was just, you know, trying its hardest to keep what talent it had and mean like its employees and they were struggling. Right. And this idea that the NBA was this next gem that could be, you know, could be the big, but could be the next big thing. Um, but you know, today we take it for granted is, is what I'm getting at. Um, and I think it does, it does a good job of like demystifying that, like, you know, the name NBA and taking it to its bare fundamental. So in that regard, I think it does a pretty good job of being a sports movie, like in the regard, like say like some of the ones we cover like draft day and, um, yeah, draft day, right? That's a good example. Not a whole lot of sport goes on in that one, right? But there's so many sports conversations and the exigency of teamwork. I'm talking about the Nike team now, right? And their roles and their like savant roles and how that's kind of elevated, right? Um, I, I'm gonna call it a sports movie because as I'm talking, as I'm going back and forth on this, I love the way they they kind of pass the torch of Nike as this running company, right? And we've covered some of those running movies like Prefontaine and whatnot, and the legend of coming up with this shoe, right? And this next generation of taking that shoe and it becomes a staple of Americana. Yeah, I'm gonna call it a sports movie. Sorry, I know I went on a long tangent there, but I'm gonna go ahead and say a sports movie. No, I like you working it out in real time. That's that's good. That's good to hear. No, so okay, so we're at one to one. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I have zero ambivalence. This is 100% a sports movie for me. I uh, I do think this is a great question to start off with because our podcast probably asks this more than any other question. Uh, for one of the reasons is we love to tackle peripheral sports movies. Um, but very early on, one of our – when we were doing more of what we would call like mini tournaments, we changed the names and so forth. But we do themes for like a month or two. Uh, we did behind-the-scenes sports movies and this would fit perfectly in the behind-the-scenes section with Jerry Maguire, with uh, Moneyball, uh, with um, Any Given Sunday, which has way more sports than the other ones but is a lot about the operations of a football team. Um Yes, this is a, a marriage of the entrepreneurial side of sports and sports, but the two are indistinguishable in modern, uh, I guess, life. Like we don't really relate to sports as this like primal, competitive, pure thing anymore. It's so entwined with capitalism that the two have to be considered in the narratives that we create. And this this film to me is about the mythology of sport and the mythology of branding and how those two both synchronize and harmonize and how they come into friction with one another and tension with one another. And that's where we get the drama of this movie. Um, but I don't think this could have been almost a better culmination of like the movies we've done up to this point. Jordan mentioned Prefontaine, which we have um, a, a very small sub narrative in that, which is literally about the, the genesis of Nike. Um, from the jogging world, yeah, um, it might have been without limits actually. That, that that there's two about Prefontaine, and one of those movies uh, where Donald Sutherland plays Phil Knight as the Oregon track coach, 
and he's creating shoes in like the the back room and so forth. You you I highly recommend that if you're if you're going on a deep dive into like Nike, um, even though it's a small thread in that. But uh, there's also the Last Dance, which we covered, right? And there's a key point in this uh, to not go on too far of a tangent where they're talking about how Michael Jordan will have a rise, and the hardest thing to deal with is the fall. And I feel like <laughs> the Last Dance was a lot about like this narrative. Uh, fight for Michael Jordan of like what is his narrative and it's a lot of it is like America trying to tear him down once he rose so it worked perfectly with that um, and then I already mentioned like the money balls right the behind the scenes movies this fits in so perfectly with you can bring up Jerry Maguire right like a businessman trying to recruit that star athlete to change the trajectory of their company I mean here we already have an established company uh, as Nike but they're but they're the very bottom rung in the early 80s of the the shoe, especially the basketball shoe uh, market, which I didn't understand. So the last thing I want to say as we get into this conversation is that what really surprised me was not that like whether this is a sports movie or not, that the fact this was an underdog movie. I, I did not expect that coming in. I thought <laughs> Nike was already dominant, so I did not see uh, or expect or predict that this would actually be also an underdog sports movie. So we're gonna talk a little yeah. bit about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> at some point because I <laughs> cool. I have feelings about how this movie portrayed them. Yeah, portrays Nike. I, you know, when you just said Donald Sutherland, a young Donald Sutherland is Phil Knight. Like I immediately thought to myself, oh my gosh, that's that's way better than a Ben Affleck. It, like I I could see that instantaneously being a Phil Knight the way he looks the way his mannerisms are so i I gotta check that out i also am not ambivalent on this at all but i guess it's gonna be podcast versus podcast which is fantastically funny because you guys are a sports podcast and you're both saying sports movie and we're not necessarily a sports podcast but we are both saying not move uh sports movie i actually go back even further patrick to two weeks ago when we talked about tetris and how tetris is a movie about a business deal it just happens to be that the business is a video game that is the product. And for me, that's how I felt about Air. This is entirely about a product. It's about a creation of a shoe. It just happens to be because this athlete is the conduit in which that shoe is going to become a product that can be sold and make money. For me, I think where it really f- kind of i don't know defines itself as not being a sports movie or fails to define itself as a sports movie is there's no on the court action at all there's nothing there's zero the only thing we see is i think one time maybe sunny is watching tape of athletes or something you know like he's doing scouting i guess the movie starts on a court i think he's at one of his like uh you know nike summit basketball events but there's no michael jordan on the court really like this isn't about the sport of basketball being played it is all about the athlete and as a person and so it just happened to me that that's what his job is is a sport but it's not about him doing the sport in a sense and so i kind of went with it being more sports adjacent but a business movie than being a traditional sports movie uh, that we like to think about. Yeah, I just want to chime in real quick. The, I had so many thoughts just like when you were talking right now. And one of the things that I think was intentional about this film is to take the the athletic uh, footage, right? The sport footage of Michael Jordan and remove it almost as much as possible. 
And they even don't let us see the actor who is Michael Jordan in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for this omission, it went, it went through it a lot. I was meditating on it because it, it kind of upset me at first. And then I started thinking about it. And I feel like it's to actually allow his mythology to be in our memories. We know so much about Michael Jordan. He's so greater than life that I just wanted to say, like, the sport is already in our minds, in our memories. And I think this movie is like, we don't need to refresh you on that. But I think that it's in the subtext of the whole movie. So, yes, we never really see Michael Jordan because we've already spent decades watching Michael Jordan, watching Michael Jordan clips. And so, like, why would we need to see him? Um, the, the other two defenses I have really quick is that our main character in this, right, is the Matt Damon character, Sonny. He's a basketball scout. So it's also about, like, the observer or the recruiter or the person who has an eye for talent. And so much of this movie is him having this unorthodox and very astute ability to judge talent, uh, it comes from that really seminal scene in the film where he watches the famous Michael Jordan UNC shot. I think with like oh, just over a minute to go where Dean Smith puts the ball in his hands, creates the decoy of the, the true star on the team. James I know, Aaron, Worthy. James yes. Worthy. James the, Worthy. Yes. Yep, James Worthy. <laughs> Don't forget um, the Lakers name. Of course. Uh, but, but just watching that again and again, it's such a big scene in this film. How casual he is. How calm he is. He knows he's getting the ball. He doesn't hesitate for a second when he shoots that ball. And it's from that footage that he takes this business uh, decision to whole new heights, right? They pretty much break all the rules, make a paradigm shift in the industry in allowing Jordan to get a percentage of the rights. I mean, his mom does a lot of work there. She's, she has an incredible entrepreneurial acumen. But um, that also is something about sport to me that Tetris might not have is that she brings to the table the fact that like, okay, we have a product, but the product is dependent upon an athlete still performing. So there's this factor that's very undetermined that won't exist in the same way of another product. Like say Michael Jordan doesn't pan out, right? Like I'm tr- we could think of a million first round, even first pick busts, not a million, but like I'm exaggerating, but we, a lot of busts in the NBA draft. So uh, I think that plays into this too. It's like, how do you predict talent? How do you predict that your sponsor, who you are investing your company in, is going to pan out? And so much of that is in the film that I think that is definitely a sports narrative that's that's business oriented or business adjacent, but actually also like it doesn't work in other business senses. Like it's very unique to sport. So anyways, sorry to yeah. chime in so much early on. No, I just no. had to go after that. Yeah. So let me, let me push back on that a little bit. I, I don't disagree that without Michael Jordan and what he brings literally to the story, this is not a story that's very compelling because he's the crux of that. And you're right. He is the reason, you know, you watch the trailer, the movie's called air and you think it's going to be about, well, it's subtitled Courting a Legend. So we're already going into it saying, okay, cool. This is like the last dance in a different angle. And I was a little disappointed that at the beginning of the movie, we started evading Michael Jordan as a as an actor, as a character. Like, oh, but he's the symbol. He is the crux behind the story of Sonny and, and Nike and everything. The challenge I have with calling this a sports movie is that in 1991, Edward James Olmos was part of a movie called Talent for the Game. 
and it was about a talent scout. He was the he was the center point of the movie going out and finding actual talent in baseball and he discovers this guy named Sammy Bodine. It's not a great movie, but it's Edward James almost. You got to watch it, you know. I'm going to watch anything with Edward James almost in it. And this movie had both. It was his story, but it was also baseball coverage and it was the intricacies of being able to hear and feel and all the stuff that goes into the magic of talent scout and, and baseball scouting specifically. To me, that's a sports movie because not only did it have baseball footage, but the baseball itself, the sport was what drove his character. Like he, if, if, if you had Sonny, who was a talent scout, independent of Nike, if he was a talent scout for a team, a sports team or something like that, or he was trying to, maybe this was like the, <laughs> the story of the Olympics and the dream team. To me, that's a sports movie led by a guy who found all this talent. When you make it about Nike, which is compelling in and of itself, I found it very compelling. And Sonny's at the center of it. I put myself in the position of saying it's more sports adjacent. And I think that that's, that doesn't take away from the fact that it doesn't fit that category for me because I think Draft Day is a great movie. And I'm going to watch it probably. <laughs> I tell Aaron, I watch it every year. Uh, even though I have no interest in the NFL draft. It's like my football movie when the draft comes around because I love the drama of it. I, I, I frankly love the way it's shot. I love the split screen. That is part of what attracted me to it. But if I have to define it in a way that says the most we're getting from a sports movie is highlight reels, to me, that's not enough. I need to be able to see on-screen action. I need to be able to be on the field. The Replacements, obviously, is a sports movie. Even though the football scenes aren't great, it's still a sports movie to me because the sport itself, the game, the actual game itself is part of that journey, as opposed to an icon that is what's driving this. Now, that being said, it it's that icon, that sort of unicorn <laughs> that we're set up with that makes it so great because the fact is it's like what Phil Knight says in the movie. He says, running is not about the destination. Running is about the journey, about getting there. And that's exactly what this movie is. We knew, we, we, we know what happened. Michael Jordan sitting back making 400 million a year just by sitting on his butt. We knew that we knew all these things. We know about the six championships. We, 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 uh, we drank the Kool-Aid and knew that this guy was probably the greatest athlete of all time. And yet we sat in our seats for two hours plus because we wanted to see what happened in this moment that changed the course of a company like Nike. And to me, without Michael Jordan, it's nothing. It's just another like line in Business Weekly. Nike acquired this guy. And I think that's how the movie sets up the whole thing so perfectly because they go from, okay, we need these three mediocre players to, nope, we're going to put all our money into this guy based off of what we think might happen. And that's the compelling part about the movie to me. And you know, we almost you. had Sorry. Air Stockton's. <laughs> that's a good point. That, oh, man, I would have rocked an Air Stockton. I know, right? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, I was going to say, one of the things I think that as I'm going through it, like, I agree with you. A, a lot of that actually helps this be a sports movie. Because a lot of this is, like you said, about Nike coming together as a team. It follows so many of our classic sports shows. This is about the renegade talented dude and the team doesn't get him right he actually knows his, what he's talking about he's the skilled guy 
but the coach doesn't get him. The owner doesn't get him, right? He's got to rally troops by, like, you know, stepping over the lines, right? It's, a, it's many ways a quintessential sports, sports movie, even to the point where the owner is going to come in and give him his play, right? Let him run the play. Uh, that's one thing I was thinking about. It really does identify, like, the, the relationship, again, between business culture and sports, as we keep saying, right? And how they're just really inseparable in certain degrees, right? Especially, like we talk about Nike, NBA, these giant icons now. Um, looking at Nike as that, again, framing as that underdog, as that not the, the billion dollar, you know, evil empire they are now. They're the bad news bears in this movie where, you know, they, they got to come together and get this, you know, get the, you know, the best player on their team being Michael Jordan. I, I see a lot of sports tropes in this one as I was kind of, as I'm, as I'm meditating, looking back on this, even in our culmination of our big, big event, right? The getting him in the boardroom, right? And even that comes down to going with the gut play, right? Um, I love the way it ties back to gambling in the beginning, but that, that's just, this is a side note. Uh, but in that regard, I really see it as, as very much like Team Nike and just like celebrating just team culture, corporation. I'm saying that kind of like sarcastically to a certain degree, but that's a big part of this. And that is the blueprint to some degree of, you know, of American culture as it is now. Like that is what most businesses want to be. They want to be that Nike. It's that inspiring story. Um, and this is humanizing it, right? This is humanizing that narrative and giving the faces to it. Yeah, I, I wondered about this and you know should we feel okay about rooting for nike in the first place like does it is it a little strange i I personally had some kind of you know conflicting feelings about the way that nike was being romanticized essentially in this movie i mean this takes nike and it like you said it puts them in the position of the underdog who which is hilarious because they're at the time of this movie, they are number one in the world in like running shoes. They are a hundreds of million dollar company. It's not like they are some fledgling startup. What they are doing is expanding. They are broadening. They're being capitalists. They're actually taking over somebody else's market share that they already had beaten in the running game. <laughs> and instead of letting Adidas and Converse have a piece they're like you know and and i think it's funny because the movie specifically makes us think of adidas and converse as you know crap shows basically like they intentionally uh you know personify them for us as an audience as being not worthy of having michael jordan of having poor motivation and you know like they're just in it for whatever else but like we care about the guy None of this is about that. That that was like one of my only issues is that it, it really does come off as like we're Nike and we're doing the right thing. And for me, I was like, that, none of that. It's all BS. Like, it's not true. You don't care about Michael Jordan. Like, I know on some level, yes, probably there is some care, but like it, it's about business. It's about making the money. So I just wondered, did anybody else have like similar feelings or were you guys all just like on board? <laughs> I was on board until the end. Hundred <laughs> percent, I was on board, but like it humanized them to such a degree. Like I like the way you phrase it, startup culture. It's a great look at like of, of startup culture, like positioning them as that as that. Like you don't even think about the other departments that they, you know, mention really quickly. Um, yeah, but the, one of the elements I think it works in its favor is this lineup. Like I, it really worked for me was that moment where you get Jason Bateman telling that story about him and his uh, seven year old uh, daughter. 
how he just likes to bring her shoes and it's the crux of the relationship right and again it's that it's that idea that they're just regular employees like yes nike today is all sorts of things right it's just, it's a it's a phenomenon it's, it represents so many things but at the heart it's just people right people built this thing some of them are nameless and you know this was a huge risk for just people who just want to keep their jobs that was one thing that I think worked really well for it because like that it keeps you in the movie. Like you said, it makes you root for the underdog. I'll be hundred percent. I'm rooting for Nike in this movie, not really thinking yeah. about the exterior. A lot of it does a good job just situating situating you in the '80s. I think in the beginning too. I got to give him credit to that. Um, but yeah, that story with Jason Bateman, I think just it worked really well. Just keep me entranced with the idea that, like, yes, these these are like just regular people, and Matt Damon's just the savant of all. But he's taken a really big chance, right? And like, then didn't even think about these other dudes. Uh, that moment really, like, I think it was a powerful moment. It helped me just, like you said, not really think about it until I left the theater. And I'll be honest, when the credits roll, they start trying to make it like, this was the moment when we made it so college athletes could have money. They try to make that really big link to that. Uh, that's kind of when like the 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 veil came off for me as a viewer <laughs> in the credits. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of how it went. I struggled more after the movie than during it. Well, actually, though, yes, in the credits, they bring up like uh, the O'Bannon. And uh, I think it was the character that Matt Damon, Sonny, speaks to in a bar really quickly, um, who I guess turns out to be a major like uh, determining factor in this uh, acquisition of Michael Jordan into Nike um, and how like they won the, the like biggest court case for NIL. Um, but I thought that actually, oddly enough, and I'm usually like so anti the corporate um, and uh, self-congratulatory figure at the center. Um, I thought it was a little more even killed than I expected. And I, I did not have that same sentiment in, in I guess, probably to the same degree um, that everyone else did. For one, uh, as Jordan said, like it's structured as a sports movie. So like we're positioned to like the, the team we're rooting for. Um, but in ways I thought that Nike was shown with some nuance uh, that maybe I wasn't expecting in the sense that Phil Knight is not always so likable. He's not even always so daring. Like he's kind of, I mean, he gets called out by Sonny for like only caring about PNL sheets and the shareholders in one scene. Um, and then at the end, I guess he is very calm in saying like, yes, let's, let's uh, give Jordan a percentage of the shoe uh, because he goes on a run, which I, I kind of love and I kind of believe. Knowing his mythology, he's kind of like a Steve Jobs-esque figure. Like he has a persona around him that many people know and understand. Um, and he's positioned in the market very similar to a lot of Silicon Valley CEOs. Um, but for me, I guess the focal point is like, how did this represent Nike versus Adidas and Converse, right? Because that's like, those are the two nemeses in this film, right? Those are the two rivals. And you're right. They they malign both of those, but I, I almost think that it, they had to because you have to have an in if you're trying to grab a share of a market that you know you don't have the advantage in, right? And I don't think they're lying when they said because I remember hearing about this, I remember seeing this in the footage that Michael Jordan loved Adidas, like he loved to wear Adidas, he loved the track suits, and they're not that's not a fib, right? That's completely real. And it's also completely real that Converse was dominating the game at this time, right? I, I forget the big three, but they had, I know, Magic Johnson. Um, Larry Bird. They had yeah. uh, Larry Bird. Julius and Irving. They had, 
Julia Serving, thank you. They had three huge, huge names, right? And the thing that Sonny has to do is find a way to kind of tarnish their credibility just enough so that they can just get the meeting, right? And I love his two ends. One, for Adidas, right? He brings up the fact that we've had a, if anyone watches Succession, uh, a sort of like Logan Roy posthumous fiasco going on where the the head honcho who is often dissed in this film for being a nazi which actually is covered in fifa uncovered a film we did recently so there is like these these crazy roots with adidas in germany and fascism that you can explore if you want to go down that rabbit hole but but it just kind of very lightly brings it up almost in a jocular way which is a little odd but but it works because once again that is a critique on adidas but but we have this scenario where we have the i think it's like the four children who are like all kind of running it right so he he sunny when i say he in his meeting with michael jordan's mother all right his his real business manager even even more than his agent um has to prime her for these meetings that are going to happen before he even gets to possibly bring michael jordan to oregon And he has to sort of poison the well, right? And so he says, like, there's going to be no organization. Do you want that headache for a few years, right? And they do that really well, I think. And then just to quickly move to Converse, their main problem is that they have all the big names. But then Michael Jordan is just another big name. Like, he doesn't stand out. He's not a unicorn, right? He's just in the shadow of these other greats. And I think that the film does a really amazing job of setting that up and showing that in the meeting when when she asks them, like, how will my son stand out? And they don't yeah. have an answer, right? And so, yes, I guess I I, I, I can see where you're, uh, where you're saying, Aaron, that this favors Nike in a very um, unfair way as a Nike film. And you wonder, like, who's backing this, who's funding this, and so forth. But I almost don't think the narrative could be written any other way. I guess that's why I'm a little apologetic for it. Because they have to sort of outmaneuver and, and use clever, sly tactics to do the very thing that the film does. Tarnish the rivals so they can get the, the big unicorn win with endorsing and signing yeah. Michael Jordan. So, yeah, for me, oddly enough, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that... Uh, I don't know. It wasn't that biased in a strange way. It, it even has the last thing I want to say on this on this topic. One of the very last scenes is Phil Knight saying, "Like, what the hell did we do? Like, we just opened a, a can of worms that like we can never put back." And you know, he said something that's very almost defeatist, but I, I kind of loved. It was just like, "Well, at least we had fun, right? Like, at least we disrupted the thing." But but it, that even shows that like there was some contrition to this decision, and that. Uh, you know, they weren't even completely certain they had made the right call. And maybe they had in the long run. If you're, you know, I mean, giving a a player equity is like a huge, huge compromise that they made. And by setting that precedent, they really did some harm to their pockets, right? They did a lot, it did a lot of good, I think, for the greater, like for an, a neutral observer. But for, if you're like rooting for like, you know, the guys in suits to, to bank the most money that they possibly can bank. Boy, did they undermine their their industry and their their people. So, anyways, 
yeah, that's my a movie like this. I think it does romanticize for its intent. And it made a whole lot of sense in that conversation that Sonny had with Jordan's mom, where he is essentially saying, this is what you're going to expect. And he's playing to what he already knows about Jordan, that Jordan wants to be his own man. And what's funny is I enjoyed this whole journey. And then you take your step back and you're like, man, all of this is about ego. Everything is about ego. If you think about how he coerced Jordan's mom, Dolores, he basically said, if your son wants to show that he's the best, he can play basketball. But if he wants to stand out, we're going to give him more than enough room to make him be the king of basketball. We're going to allow him to do that. And it's wrapped up in the uncertainty that we already know the answer to. And so when we look at Sonny's journey, we're rooting for him because we want to be a part of that decision that Michael makes to come to Nike. But I always have to take that step back and say, why? Why would Nike need to do this when they own the basketball or the, the running shoe industry? When is enough enough, Phil? You don't even wear shoes half the time in your office. Why do you even care? <laughs> and and, it, and I, I just had a – I consistently had a reality check throughout the movie. It didn't take away from my enjoyment, but I'm thinking I don't feel bad about rooting for these characters, but it's entirely stupid because there's no humility in any of this at all like nobody in this movie has humility it's all about how do we make x greater how do we get jordan because that's going to boost an a part of our company that is really non-existent at this point that hasn't been successful why can't you just let adidas have it why can't you just let converse be why why and and that why just kept sitting with me the whole time and i'm laughing going i can't really see any virtue from what's happening here, apart from like uber capitalism. And I think that all the decisions that were made, risky or otherwise, were successful in that kind of arena. Outside of that, you want to think about nobility, you want to think about man in the long term, am I going to think Nike and Phil Knight are altruistic? No. And you throw that whole $2 billion that he gave away throughout. Sure, because you had that. I mean, if you didn't have $2 billion, you wouldn't give it away to charity. I'm grateful, but that's really kind of the, it's the character trait of a billionaire. You got to give stuff away because if you don't, you're going to look like a jerk. So when I see a little line like that at the end of the movie, I'm like, well, yeah, of course you did. I, and you know what? I, I give a certain amount of money away every year because there are things that I care about. Does that make me more noble than Phil Knight? No. People are are wired to be selfish. And then a percentage of them is wired to be like, you know what? I need to give something. You know what? There was a tornado in my town a couple of weeks ago. I should probably do something to make myself feel better. Also, people need stuff. But there's something in us as human beings that I think is sort of lived out in this movie. And it's wrapped up in this romantic idea of, man, we're going to root for these guys. But really, we're rooting for capitalism. We're rooting for like... Who's going to make the most money? Who's going to get the big fish? And who's going to actually be a success? And I think a counter to that is Dolores' conversation with Sonny when she, when she says, hey, we want a percentage. I want to get mine. And that, of course, connects back to that line about the NIL stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're sticking it to the man at that point. You know, like, but really, are you? I mean, the fact is, people are going to make money, whether they're off the backs of athletes or normal IT guys or whoever, <laughs> I mean, there is a, there's a sense that 
everybody's going to get something. And so by the end of the movie, I kept thinking, this is a fun little journey, but I don't feel any better or worse or more, more or less altruistic about individuals, including Michael Jordan, by the way, because as much as we get that scene with Sonny kind of cataloging the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall of Michael Jordan, the dude made stupid decisions, just like any human being. He failed and he succeeded. Is he the greatest basketball player of all time? I would say yes. And that's a longer conversation that I probably have little knowledge to cater to, to lean into. But the fact is, I can't put him on a pedestal. I can't do that because it's not one, it's not good. You don't put anybody, you can't put anybody on a pedestal because they're going to let you down at some point. But also the fact that he did something, he didn't do everything. And so in this bubble of a story, He's the crux, and I think he is part of that journey, and I think he deserves all the accolades that the movie's giving him. But at the end of the day, this is a real story, and Michael Jordan has probably gambled a lot of that money away as much as he's made. And so, it I mean, you're going to romanticize it, and that's fine. Romanticize it, because that's what makes a good story. But there were enough checks and balances in here where I had to go, mm, yeah, it's ego. At the end of the day, it's really all about that. So I want to take and kind of follow that on with this whole revenue sharing aspect of this, because I found that to be almost underexplored. I kind of wish like we would have gotten more of that, <laughs> but I get it. You know, it's the end of the story. It's the end of this story. It's the end of the beginning, but it's the start of something that is a whole other, you know, massive thing. I did not know that when I watched this, I did not know that Michael Jordan's Air Jordan deal was the first ever revenue sharing for an athlete. And and it blew my mind. And it actually was a kind of thing that for me, it really did solidify and say, okay, he's the goat. And I know that maybe that even shouldn't be a consideration for a lot of people because you're like, oh, you're taking this non-basketball thing. But when you take the holistic impact of a person's career and you, you can throw this into that, what that did for not just basketball athletes, but like all athletes, all sports and and probably other types of uh, competitive wages and things beyond even sports. But like it was such a big deal and it was kind of this throwaway thing in the end where it's like, are they going to do it? Are they not going to do it? And if they do it now, we've set this precedent that the movie does tie in that like epilogue text or whatever to NIL, which is a whole other like controversial concept. And I thought that it was interesting that Michael Jordan is not the crux of all this. Like he is again, he is simply he's the one doing the work like on the court ultimately. But like this whole movie, he's not the one doing any work. It is his mother, Dolores. Right. And so if you look at the way this is framed to us from a story standpoint, it's telling us that if it was not for Dolores Jordan, we would not have revenue sharing at that time in the way that it existed. And I found that really fascinating and, and really compelling. And for me, that is what was able to kind of elevate this movie because I, I'll be honest guys, like there's an, like, when you're talking about a whole movie, two hours of drama about the creation of a shoe that doesn't sound exciting. And there's a potential there for that to be really boring. I actually chuckled when they had that scene of the shoe and uh, Peter uh, Matthew Mayer, I think his name is, who played Peter Moore, the guy who bathed the shoe, was one of my favorite performances. Love that guy so much. 
And just the way that he was like obsessing over creating a shoe and he was so proud of it. Like you could feel that in him and I just loved it. But when we get that one shot, that's it's almost comical. And and I think Affleck did this intentionally, making fun of himself in a sense or making fun of the fact that like it's like that moment with the shoe for five seconds. And that's all you get about the shoe, really. And I just thought that it was Dolores. Dolores is the center of this whole thing. And and that's incredible because, you know, I don't know if anybody listening to this knows this or not, but Michael Jordan only gave his approval to do this movie in the first place when Affleck approached him about it if Viola Davis was cast as his mother. That was his one condition. And it paid off, right? And And so he knew how much she was important to his story and to telling this. And and I was really compelled by that aspect of it. Yeah, I think that one thing you bring up that's really interesting is humility. Um, and I think that that's a, a uh, not to critique it too hard, but I think that's a weird barometer for like whether this is something to like root for or not, or whether like there is no virtue in a lack of humility. Like, but But I think that's a fair one because I think that's one of the main gripes that the uh, especially the revisionist American public have with Michael Jordan is he's this figure that really had very little humility. He he was a shark, and so like when we did the Last Dance, uh, when we had guests, like and if you watch the Last Dance, like and if you read any meta think pieces on the Last Dance, it was all about how like Michael Jordan made this Faustian bargain for greatness and sold his soul because he was just this competitive like ubermensch i love the i love the also patch that you said like uber capitalism because i i think you're you're right on on all this but for me i i almost find that it is a celebration of that and yes there is an ugly side i believe that there is there is power to humility right but in the world of capitalism in the world of sport often the winner is the person with the biggest ego who is taking the biggest swings who is unafraid and who is bold and who is daring. And I think this movie has a disdain for people who have humility because they're the suits who want to play it safe and who will not take those risks that will forever change the trajectory of their company or if you're an athlete that will forever change the trajectory of your career. One of the things this movie does point out is that Michael Jordan was fairly ordinary as a college player. It also brings up the fact that he was cut from his high school team. So a lot of it was a psychological flip, a switch that went on in this guy's head, Michael Jordan's head, Uh, maybe because he made some huge shots in college, maybe because he had Dean Smith as his coach, Uh, maybe because he was drafted to the right team. We don't know. There's so many factors, but something went on and kind of late in his career, if you're counting high school, which are formative years and even college, did he truly blossom into the greatest of all time, right? And one of the things that's so interesting to me is that when Sonny is watching that video, what he notices the most, and I brought this up earlier, is how casual Michael Jordan is, right? He's calm and he's collected. And the thing that Jason Bateman critiques about Sonny himself, right, is that he's too cavalier, which you could say is a little different. There's some connotation to that word, but it's synonymous with casual, right? He's too casually risking their their livelihoods, right? And there's a beautiful scene because it really shows two different adults and the way they perceive risk and gambling, right? Here's a guy that's kind of a bachelor, 
uh, he doesn't really have any tethers, right? He's he's unafraid to like just lose his job. That it's kind of obvious throughout the film, right? He kind of speaks his mind. And here's another guy who's the corporate guy who's really good at his job as well, but he's very timid. He has maybe humility or maybe cowardice. Like what's the difference there, right? So they're they're blurring the lines of these things. And Sonny early on positions himself and the film positions him as antagonistic to anyone who plays it safe. There's nothing he dislikes more than those other talking heads who have a seat in the room, right? I think he tells the store clerk early on when he's bantering with a guy who he buys the magazine from at the like convenience store, right? That he has no patience for pe- I don't know if he tells him that, but he says this at some point, but it comes from that scene where he's he's obviously almost has more respect for this guy who's selling uh, you know, just a, a magazine. He works like a minimum wage job than the suits in his office because he says he has no patience for people with no insight and act like they deserve a seat at the table, right? And that's so much of corporate culture, right? And I love that about his character. The one thing that really upset me about this movie, a small thing, is that they somehow wanted to dunk on the convenience store clerk <laughs> yeah. at the end because the convenience store clerk had a very... Very strong reasoning behind why he thought Michael Jordan wouldn't yeah. pan out. Like the guy knew his stuff. He said he had 17 points a game as a as a freshman. If if you're a college player, 17 points a game, it's not that impressive, right? He said he'll get 10 points a night in the NBA. He'll he'll kind of like fade in a few years. Like yes, he was wrong, but hindsight's 2020. That that guy knew his stuff, right? And I don't know why we needed to dunk on the store clerk. Again. That was my biggest gripe almost with the whole movie. I was like, I had so much respect for that guy. He knew where no, Gonzaga was. was Ongoing joke, yeah. Fun inside <laughs> joke. Yeah, it was a great joke for us college basketball lovers, right? Um, they had a lot of little Easter eggs for people who love basketball, right? The other great joke was Charles Barkley. And the fact that they're like, oh, he's he's too much of a locker room loudmouth. That was so funny. He'll never work on TV. And anyone who loves the NBA knows that Charles Barkley is he's so cavalier, too. But he's just the best on TV. He's so hilarious. And it works wonders for American capitalism. So so anyways, no, I I think that's a really interesting discussion that you brought up, Patrick. And uh, but. I, I guess I was trying to just flip the script and say, like, maybe that's the point. Maybe they're trying to say capitalism and athletics favors the reckless, yeah. favors the bold. And humility is actually, yeah. in, in that sense, I would not disagree in this with that. environment. So when it comes to structure of a film and stuff, you know, I was talking about how I kind of thought it was potentially going to be a little too boring. Did you guys enjoy the way that Affleck crafted it? I I will say I was just a humongous fan. I thought he nailed this 80s aesthetic, this ongoing kind of weird fetish almost with like close ups of different phones. I don't know why that was a thing, but like there was like all these different phones. But like I had a we had a bag phone in our car when that first came into existence. I was alive when that first happened. And I thought that that was kind of cool to see. And I just the needle drops were on point in this. Everything kind of felt like it had the right aesthetic and vibe to it. And that I thought helped kind of propel it that combined with just a cast that it felt like this was one of those movies where everybody probably got along and had a great time coming to work. I've listened to some interviews with Matt and Ben and. You know, this was a project that came out of their new production company 
that they've started. And they said in this last interview specifically that this was kind of came about because they got to the point where they were like, listen, we're getting old. We've accomplished so much and we really just want to work together (laughs) and let's just do it. (laughs) <laughs> that was definitely not on purpose, but <laughs> they, uh, they they decided to go for it, right? And I felt like there was a passion in every person that they brought into the film. I thought that there were so many like little MVP moments. Like I, I mentioned Matthew Mayer as the, the shoe guy, Chris Messina, like in limited screen time as the agent <laughs> was absolutely pitch perfect just absolutely phenomenal as that guy jason bateman you you mentioned just the perfect person to play that role of someone who actually cares about their job um so i I really liked like everything about like how they kind of structured this system of just having the perfect cast members in place and capturing that era and that helped drive forward the fact that the narrative is not really that deep. Did you guys have a similar experience as that? I'm right there with you. I think the casting was just like, they, he knocked out of the park on this one. This is one of my, I think it's my favorite Ben Affleck movie. I'll say that actually, because I'm going thinking in my head. I think it has these great vibes with like Damon, just humor. Humor in this one was, is, was what stands out to me. And the juxtaposition with the great casting of Jordan's family, particularly his dad. Anyone who's seen pictures of his dad remembers the videos of Jordan's dad. was like, I'm going to say it's like possible. It's like looking at a ghost and in the best way possible. Um, very moving. Like Viola Davis kills it with the seriousness. And like you said, the idea of like this point you guys brought up earlier with this, this balancing of humility and the idea of knowing your worth and the way it played out through these other characters. I, I, I thought it was just knocked out of the park across the way and the A's aesthetic. Like you mentioned the A, you mentioned the music drops, but I was loving the costumes in this one. Even from the bad wig that like Ben Affleck is wearing, it's not the best wig, but like it's it's intent of what it's trying to do with that perm, that hideous like perm he's got. Uh, but the part where he shows up in that horrible Nike track shoot before Nike track suits were cool, with like the shorts and the pink leggings, like yeah, I, I thought he knocked out of the park where like Ben Affleck plays it so like dry and almost like over the top, like '80s macho bravado, but weirdly Buddhist corporate dude. He did it so well, composed to, like, juxtaposed with Matt Damon as just the fat, out of shape, love, like, the guy who loves the sports, right? The the, the true fan. Like, the true fan. I think there's, there's this great casting of, of these two. Seeing Matt Damon is just, like, this everyday Joe. Uh, and, I mean, Ben Affleck's always great as an authority figure. I'm thinking of him in, like, The Last Duel. Um, I guess that's probably the last one I saw with them two together, right? Uh, I liked it. I thought, I, I was, overall, like, like you said, it's... I, I I kind of feel like weird saying it's a boring subject because I actually one of my favorite parts of the last dance was when Jordan admits that the only reason he took that beating was because his mom told him to. And that's unfortunately the scene we don't actually get. That's what I would have wished to see was Mama Jordan being like, you put your suit on, we're going to this meeting. Like, yeah. That's the one I wanted to see because we never get to see Jordan as a kid, right? That mythology is still there. He's still very much in charge, even though we know Mama runs the show, right? But he's still the athlete, still, you know, he, he's imposing in the room. And we never get to see him as a as a college kid, really, as a kid scared of this thing, which is works for I think it works for like this message we're trying to go with of run with the Nike mythology. Um, but all that was there, though. I think there's like the balance of humor and the balance of the reality of the situation and this historical retelling. It was off the walls fun for me. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to 
ask Aaron, actually, you might know this for sure, but Jordan mentioned the likeness of Michael Jordan's dad in the film. Isn't it Viola Davis's husband? I think someone Google this. I believe I read that she wouldn't get on board if she didn't have her husband actually play the dad as well. So I think it's actually Viola Davis's husband who plays the dad. I might be wrong. I, I could have swore I read that somewhere. Um, but anyways, as you guys looked that up, I, I also thought that the 80s was spot on. The Violent Femmes, Needle Drop, the the exposition about Born in the USA, right? Um, I think that was a great piece in this film and also showed that like there's this veneer of capitalism that's very glossy. Right. But there's a darkness behind it. Or sometimes it's just right there. <laughs> it's, it's not even hiding, but it's hidden in plain view. And a lot of this movie is not too, I guess, uh, afraid to, I guess, give a little jab at capitalism. I mean, even Sonny says to Phil Knight, the Dalai Lama, right, when he's kind of making fun of like his, his, his Buddhist ways, right? Uh, I don't, what, what car was it? It isn't driving around a Porsche, right? Like, yeah, it is a great line, right? But yeah, but there's definitely a self-awareness that, that this is a film, starting off with that montage in the beginning, right? Where you just get like a flood and an inundation of 80s imagery and songs, right? And then they keep showing that neon Nike sign in the building, right? Um, which is so 80s, right? You get the feeling that like, basketball shoes uh, music right because music is a big part of this with the needle drops right all of that really is capitalism that that's the one unifier that is the sole unifier to all this if you want to pick one right and so um to to take this back like oh is it a sports is it not which is a really great discussion we've had an interesting debate right uh, I, I think maybe you do have something that this is more, first and foremost a film about capitalism. The funny thing is that's umbrella for all of these other things, right? And we could point out these structural parallels, right? As we've done in this episode of like Matt Damon is the the savvy talent, just like Michael Jordan is the savvy talent, right? And one's a businessman and one is an athlete. And the fact is, but they're both capitalists in very different sense, but they're both professionals doing their job, right? And their job has to, has a level of, of, of competition within it. And, and I think so much about this is like how American mythology is created in these back rooms, right? In these deals with these, with these huge figures and how that becomes the, the dominant mythology of of everything right and so why for me um not to harp back on it too much why it is sports though is because my my understanding of sports is intrinsically tied into this notion of all the meta commentaries right the owner is just as interesting to me as a point guard um the coach is just as interesting to me you know as the forward Uh, but but yes if if it's if it's more about the actual the game right the 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 actual physical prowess and so forth, then very removed. But but this is more about the, the tapestry of how these these concurrent like industries, right, or these concurrent professions really feed off each other and and have to like and and work in in have a synergistic flow that create this notion of what is the eighties. The eighties actually has a lot more like when you think about like the 80s music and 80s basketball and 80s shoes and 80s fashion and all these different things, right? 
they're all they're all tied up in all these crazy ways like they really are connected and interconnected to create this holistic idea this nostalgic idea of the 80s so i guess that would be my take on it yeah i look at i look at the 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 set design the costumes and everything and one thing i like is essentially that it's not stranger things 80s where it's not trying to capitalize to use a word that we've kind of used a lot on nostalgia those set pieces and the costumes were accentuations of the world that we were living in and i found it really interesting uh, going back to a comment that that jordan made earlier that makes this movie work for me it's that it's really about people it really is about the relationships that people have with each other and when you when you see rob strasser played by jason bateman talk about his relationship with his daughter i didn't care about him until that moment it humanized him he has a family he gets to be what do you say he has he gets to be a dad for four hours a week which is sad like he wants more of that and he admits there's there is a there's a, a little meta narrative here that sort of calls attention to the capitalist part of this movie where he says she's got 70 pair now of nike because that's the relationship that i have but it doesn't diminish how deeply he cares about her in the same way uh, we see Phil Knight, who is unapologetic about his extravagances. He talks about his purple Porsche that is considered grape, even though it has like, what, 70 layers of paint underneath it to get it that perfect color that feels like is cheapened by calling it grape. But I think that that's what makes this movie work, is that it sort of accepts the fact that capitalism is the proponent of all this it's what's driving all this but it doesn't forget about the fact that people are at the center of it whether it's sunny whether it's phil whether it's jordan whether it's his family it it really is never about the sport and i'm not gonna i mean calling it a sports movie or not i think that that's what sells it for me i don't think that it could exist without the story that is driving it but i think that even what Affleck does from a directorial standpoint in that he doesn't expand his sets. Like everything happens in the bullpen or in the tertiary. The only time we move up or down in that building is to Phil Knight's area to show the executive side of things, but we never see the board. Or we go down to the basement where the shoes are made. We never move around. We never see any other division. We never see the bigness of Nike, even though it's talked about. But even when we go to Converse and Adidas. It's a boardroom. It's very isolated. And I think that's that's a, an incredibly smart decision because it keeps the focus on the narrative that he's trying to tell. If we went to other parts of Adidas or other parts of Converse, it would start humanizing them. I mean, we see we see nobody but the board members, nobody but the evil people that run the company. And that's the message he's trying to get across. But at Nike, there are at least two times that Sonny's looking around and the camera just looks at all the people, all the people. And I don't know if they're part of the basketball division or not, but Affleck is saying, we have people, you have robots. We have people, you have robots. And and that's fine. That's totally cool. Make me love Nike for a couple of hours. I and mean, if you're going to do it, you know how to do it. And I think that's a fantastic directorial uh, move to basically reinforce the humanization of what the what Nike's trying to do here. And that's why I think it was effective 
from an audience standpoint and why we cared so much about Sonny and Phil and all these other characters because we wanted them to quote win. And I think it's because we didn't see anything else. It's all about nuance. And that's how you tell a biased story. <laughs> it's a, I don't call it a biopic. I call it a bias pick. I mean, that's what these are. All of these biopics are essentially slanted versions of stories that can't tell you the whole thing. And they shouldn't, they should entertain first and cause you to think about, Hmm, was Phil Knight really like that? Was Sonny Vaccaro really like that? And then you get all the, you know, movie to real Facts life fiction. Yeah, it's my yeah, favorite thing. It's to look and, that up afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But but and, and and riddle me this, guys. Do you ever feel any less about the movie after reading that? Because I don't. I don't care at that point. I just love seeing how the gaps are filled in. And it's actually more interesting when we find out an absurd part of a movie is actually true. That's like the icing on the cake. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that actually happened. I can't believe they made a handshake deal in a urinal, you know, whatever that is. But the fact is we love biopics because of the fact that they're entertaining us more than anything else. And we want to root for a character. And if you can't do that, you're not really giving me a great biopic. Yeah, it's good. Good point, man. Did anybody catch any other fun stuff that they just wanted to mention? Uh, Easter eggs. I, there's one that I have since confirmed. Uh, I walked out of my theater and was leaving with a couple friends that I uh, see movies with all the time, film critics here in Seattle, one of which I know loves this movie that I'm going to mention, as well as Patrick. And I was like, hey, man. So when Matt Damon, when Sonny is like in the office, there's a couple of shots where he's like sitting at a desk and there's like these old computers. And on top of one of these computers, is this little blue car. I was like, do you think that that's the car from Ford V Ferrari? And I kid you not, I was right. It was. <laughs> it was a 60s Shelby Cobra. I was like, it had a racing stripe. And so there's the one in Ford V Ferrari. And it was intentionally put in there. Uh, and Matt Damon, in a recent interview, actually confirmed it and was like, it was with a car person that was interviewing him. And he was like, I guess you, not many people have mentioned that. He said, I guess nobody caught it, but you did because you're a car person. But uh, I was proud. I was proud to have noticed that. So, yeah, that was my one little fun thing I wanted to throw in there. Was that just a Matt Damon Easter egg? Like, just because he loves the fact that he was I didn't in that read film too? his like, reasoning. It was just, but it was definitely intention. I would okay. assume so, yeah. like just a reference. But I, I think it was interesting too yeah. because when people came out of this movie, I know you know in my review and a lot of people's reviews we call this like a dad movie. This this has very much the same energy as mm. Ford v Ferrari does, as far as like <laughs> sports mm. stories type movies go. Uh, and so I just I thought it fit really perfectly. <laughs> Definitely. I, I I think that's a spot on take too. It's very much a dad movie. Um, I guess if I had to say a critique slightly, I thought Ben Affleck's direction was very seamless and competent. But I don't know if this was that different from a lot of the prestige TV shows that I watch that are very good. But like the one on Elizabeth Holmes, um, that's based off the book Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, for example. Um, the one on WeWork that had um, uh, Jared Leto in it, right? I, I, to me, those are like just I, – I, they're indecipherable from this almost in terms of production value and quality. This is just a lot of really good dialogue, well shot. He doesn't get in the way. He doesn't do anything wrong. But he doesn't do anything to also like I think really elevate this. Like Drafty does like the split screens. It does some really fun, nifty, uh, I guess, cinematography 
Uh, and I was thinking, oddly enough, at one point in this film, I wonder if like Craig, uh, I forget his last name, but uh, the guy who did I, Tanya, um, he he just has like kind of a panache. He also just recently did uh, the one about Pamela Anderson. It's a, a show, right? I was just, like, just wondering, I wonder if he directed this, what it would have been. Um, and I, this is, once again, not a knock. I thought that Ben Affleck was handled this material very, very well. But um, it didn't have a ton of panache. Maybe that was for the best. But I guess I was wondering, like, did anyone else or can you argue for the panache in this film? Like, what was I missing in terms of that level? Or what are some of the qualities that made this like very, quote, capital uh, It was C the cinematic? close-ups of the phones. That's what it was right there. No, I think there's a style here that I was picking up as I was watching it, the close-ups of the phones, but in general, the close-ups in general, I mean, there were lots of close-up shots. I don't know why that is. And sometimes if you're a designer, sometimes you just throw in stuff because it's like, Hey, there's my director's uh, mark there, but it really doesn't have a point. That's kind of what I picked up on. So I would say, Paul, I agree with you. I don't think there's anything that makes this movie go, dude, stylistically, it was great. I think it was, when I say serviceable, that really doesn't do it justice. I think it's a great movie. And I think because we're used to the standard kind of whatever, like the musical biopic, um, you know the beats that are going to be hit, <laughs> pun intended, when it comes to a musical biopic. You open with a great scene of like a major like event, and then you roll back to the main character's childhood. And then he grows up in a crappy family that doesn't believe in him. And then he gets his start and then he gets famous and then he had, does drugs or something bad. And then he finds redemption and the, you know all that stuff. I mean, if that's the life of every musician, man, that's kind of terrible. But I think that when you do something like rocket man, that changes things. And I think that this is, this is your standard biopic. This is what you see in Eddie, the Eagle. This is what you see in, you know, other kind of, live the life of a, of a famous athlete of, or whatever. And I don't think that's bad, but I want to make sure that if, if you do something like this, you're doing it with purpose. You're not just trying to ratchet it up stylistically because you want to be different. I think that the story that was told here had <laughs> boredom enough on it because of what this was a shoe deal that that was elevated to a point where it made me care more about it, like I care about the 2008 financial crisis from a different point of view. I mean, I wasn't affected by it directly, but when you have a movie that comes out that sort of stylizes that, I now care about what happened to the housing market. And I think that's what this does, is it takes something that's very mundane and it elevates it. it may not be flamboyant, but I think it's important to know that if you can make me care about that, you've done something pretty good. Yeah. Anyone else? I was just curious. I, I mean, I totally agree. I think this is really, really well handled, though. Uh, there's a lot of craftsmanship, the close-ups like you brought up, the kind of graininess. He really captures a nice graininess. Like he does a really um, decent job of, of creating the textures of the 80s without overdoing it, too. I love that you brought up earlier that this wasn't Stranger Things, right? It doesn't try to, I guess, turn it into like the amusement park version of the 80s. It feels more lived in than that. Um, uh, the Nike building, the exterior shots of the office before it was a campus feel real. Um, as you said, Patrick, the layout of the Nike offices is very well orchestrated. And I do love that the designer gets 
to be in the basement. There's this weird right hierarchy, and they're at the lowest level, yet they're the most important. And I think he's probably the unspoken hero of the story that we haven't talked about enough, right? And he's extremely fascinating with his lisp, with his midlife crisis and sudden love for skateboarding, with his discussions on do you want form or function? Function. I, I can only give you beauty or practicality. I can't give you both, right? And he said, and then you know, Sonny's asking for for like. A substantial paradigm shift and he tells him there's only been one shift in shoes in the past like three centuries and it happened 600 years ago and it was when they differentiated between the right and the left shoe right mm-hmm. just great dialogue from that guy right um and I, I do love that this was very affirmative like it loved every character it loved the creative at the bottom um I, I think it really had respect for jason bateman's character it even was very sympathetic to my favorite character in the movie, Peter Falk, the the agent, right? Mm-hmm. Chris Messina. He's hilarious in it, right? And he's vulgar and he's hard mouthed and he's rude. But the banter between him and Sonny is fantastic. And when it when it has the post credit for him eating after he sold his agency for a hundred million dollars alone, I think there's also like a, a a very unusual and unconventional love for that. Like this is someone who loves their life even though most of us don't and they're doing their thing their way like they're walking their existential life they're they are their own person and so yeah i kind of love that about this yeah i I agree i i mean i thought that the lack of flair was a complete positive in the way that he directed it and so i would i would never cancel count, count that against it because i thought i mean i noticed the close-ups as well not just on the phones but on the faces and I think that that's the thing is Affleck focused on the people. And then it ties into me you know, earlier when I was saying, and I think we all agree that the cast was just so fantastic. The script is so fantastic. There's the duality of the line, a shoe is just a shoe until somebody steps into it. When they say at the beginning, and then we come back to a close up on Viola Davis at the end. And she says, a shoe is just a shoe until my son steps into it. And like those moments that's what I needed. I, I don't I, I would have liked it less if he tried to like make it cinematic. I think this makes a comp- this is an accessible adult family friendly with language drama. Like th- we just don't get stuff like this hardly ever in the theaters. This is a straight to HBO Max, straight to I mean it was, you know, straight to Amazon or straight to Netflix type of story these days. And I really appreciated that we just did it the old school way <laughs> and put it out there. Uh, and I thought that, that it worked out just great. Yeah, hard agree on that too, actually. I think I think, I think think you make a great point that it is a plus for this film. It doesn't step in the way of the story. And it's almost best screenplay-like quality from the screenplay. It is really well done. I do want to watch it again for that reason. Like It's Moneyball-level screenwriting here. So many lines come back with a gut punch at the end. Um, so many great speeches. Um, even if like a few of them, I wished that they undercut like the Matt Damon speech, actually, which is really a great moment in the film. I I I thought it was almost like saying nothing at the same time. Um, oddly enough, like the fact that none of them will have a legacy and Michael Jordan will. I just I thought it was a lot of like uh, desperate corporate talk, like a let last second attempt to to win over an athlete and what i loved about um i guess that speech or or my reading 
is that it was it was also moot. Like my reading of this film is a very funny one uh, in in this sense. Viola Davis, uh, sorry, Dolores Jordan, right? Basically picks Nike not because Sonny was this great, nice, charming, you know, chivalrous capitalist. Not at all. She picked them because she had a strategy. She gained them. She got not a, a licensee fee, right? She she got a residual slice of the pie that that got her family four hundred million annually in passive income, as we already brought up, right? So, what is a kind of ironic about this whole movie is we're really sold the story that like Sonny won Michael Jordan along with the shoe designer, right? And along with you, you could say even Phil Knight being so you know, composed and being willing to make this actually savvy decision for Nike to allow them to have a piece of the pie because they got the, they got the, the savior of their company. Yes, they were doing great in jogging, right? But, but one of the things that we didn't focus when we were bringing that up is that if a company doesn't continuously grow in a shareholder market, if they're stagnant for just a few years, they're going to start sinking. Like, you got to actually like build and build and build. Otherwise, you could find yourself dead in the water suddenly. Where is Converse? They were bought by Nike, right? It could have been the other way around if they didn't sign Michael Jordan. Yes, that's revisionist, retrospective, you know, um, conjecture, right? I'm just hypothesizing here. But but that is a very, I guess, high probability there. So I thought that was hilarious about this film too, though. So uh, is this this idea that it was kind of all for naught. It was really Dolores Jordan running the, running the show the whole time. And so this could have been like a one scene movie. It's just like her saying, like, "Yeah, we want it. We want a percentage." Well, because that's really that all that happened at the conversation in by a picnic table in the in her backyard. When when Sunny shows up and he says who he's with, she's like, she's like this. She's like putting her. <laughs> she's like, okay, how big is this fish that we're gonna gut? Yep. Because that was an you could read that as an act of desperation. The fact again, the movie tells us, man, Sunny was so awesome. You know, he kind of. He sideswiped the agent and said, yeah, I'm not supposed to call, but you know, I can go visit. And we kind of celebrate that. But the fact is, Dolores is like, <laughs> okay, who's the most desperate? And at the end of the day, does my son really – if I can convince my son to go to a meeting in Oregon, I can convince my son to buy shoes that say Nike on them. We never find out why he loves Adidas. I don't think the movie tells us that. And I think that would have been something really interesting is leave Converse out of it. Let it be between Adidas and Nike and then amplify why Jordan was so adamant about Adidas. Because I think, not that I'm trying to get, have like to change his story, but you can definitely read a little bit more drama into that fighting against one company as opposed to two. Because when, when, when uh, Matt Damon makes that pitch to Dolores, he's basically saying, Ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. And they know that they already have Adidas in the bag. They just, all it took was them saying, give us a percentage because Adidas was going to give them the car. Adidas was going to match the 250K. So she was really not out anything. And I think she used the talent level of her son to be able to game the system and create an opening for what would later become potentially NIL stuff. 
Does that make her a bad person? Nope. I think it makes her a smart, capitalist-driven lady who is doing right by her family. If any of us on this call had that opportunity, would we take it? Yes, you absolutely bet we would. Because what would it's it's win-win for her if they turn her down. She's still got two fifty k and a car from a company that her son already likes. So she's not losing anything. She actually gained something by having a sneaker company tell her, we're going to give you all that stuff, and we're desperate enough to give you a percentage of every single thing. And if it didn't pan out, what did he get? He got a percentage of nothing, which is nothing. So he doesn't have any less or any more. He has exactly what he got with Adidas, and there it is. So at that point, I'm just thinking... I think Dolores is the smartest man in the room at that point. <laughs> yeah, I think also Chris Tucker primes us in the very beginning, in the very first meeting, when he says you always go through the mother, right? Like any of these athletes, it's the mother who has like the influence on the son, right? So we know early on it's going to be Dolores' story. And I think that's why we don't see Michael Jordan. It's like we have to know this is her story, not his story. Um, he, his story is there. It's a subtext. But it's not this film, right? And the second thing is there's a very high probability and it's almost legible is the agent also is just gaming Sonny, right? Those phone calls where he's just dissing and haranguing him and teasing him, right? There's a very pivotal moment where I forget what he says, but he goes from like the harshest, harshest diss of Sonny to suddenly saying, we'll be best friends if this deal happens with you, right? So you see that he's just trying to bait him, get how desperate he is as well. Like they're just trying to instigate the desperation so that they can get the max benefit on their end too. So I, it was very, very sly in the way it did that. I love that. Yeah, definitely agree. Well, is there anything else anybody wants to chime in on? I'll we just haven't say touched Chris on awesome in this. Just going back to actors' performances, Chris Tucker's very underrated in this. Um, just like you said, it's, as it's just an instrument of giving us so much information. We need. just kind of what uh, Pat said earlier. Like we don't know why Jordan likes Adidas, other than what Chris Tucker tells us is that in that moment in time, Adidas is the hottest thing. Run DMC is going to do a song. Everyone who's breakdancing is wearing those trash shoes. It's just that's a trendy thing, right? And it's strategic, you know, to really. It does a good job of concealing it. A lot of this came down to, like, this kid just liked how a brand he liked, you know? And then they do a really good job of just concealing that. It's, it's something minimal, and he was attached to it um, with, without without going into it and just having mom really, like, like you guys just went over to deconstruct it. But that's one thing I found really interesting is just the way, like you said, Chris Tucker in the beginning just – and with such great humor. Um, has you, like, kind of, like, dying in your seat with, like, with him setting up what the scene is and where – just put it bluntly, like, why Nike is, is the pigeon – compared to like Adidas, right? Um, and then they're going to like grow up to it or, or you know, get our underdog story. But I, I love Chris Tucker's introduction. That's like kind of like the first character we, we get like thrown in there. Yeah, he was well cast. <laughs> it was like a legacy casting too. And it was such a good casting of like a, a comedian doing a more dramatic role, but also bringing his comedic talent to the role. Um, I thought it was just a perfect pitch. Uh, uh, character and cast choice. Um, I do have one last thing too for you, Aaron. I don't have too much input on this because I haven't seen them recently enough, but I know you've been on a sort of Ben Affleck sort of binge lately on all his films. And I think they're all great, but I want to hear your two cents about like where you think this fits into his filmography, right? Because 
he has a weird filmography. It's very competent, but it's kind of a little all over the place. Uh, yeah, kind of. I guess. I guess. I, real quick before I forget, because I keep forgetting to mention this. Yes, you are correct. Julius Tenen is Viola Davis's husband and did, in fact, play Jordan's father. And I did not know that. And that was very cool. So I'm glad that you brought that up. That's a really neat uh, kind of a like connected like requirements. Jordan required it to be Viola Davis and then Viola Davis required it to be her husband. It's just kind of a cool uh, connection. I love Ben Affleck as a director. I think that he is highly, highly underrated. I think he has several phenomenal top level films. I think for me, it goes the town first and foremost, the director's cut. By the way, if anyone out there is not seeing the director's cut, you need to watch the director's cut of The Town. It's better. It's longer. It's, it's awesome. Uh, the Town is phenomenal. Heist movie is one of my favorites. I think Gone Baby Gone is also exceptional. I think Argo is exceptional. And then I think this is really, really, really good. The only one of his filmography that I really think is kind of like less than would be Live by Night, which is has been kind of critically panned and not a lot of people really love that movie it's fine but it's more of like a period piece too it's the only thing well i guess argo is kind of a period piece but it feels like more like a period piece um and and argo feels like a spy thriller so and a biopic you know which it is so i i think that he is just highly underrated but part of that is also his selectiveness and one of the things I know Patrick and I have been experiencing recently with directors that we love is we've had some misses. I'll, you know, Patrick hasn't seen it yet, probably, but Makoto Shinkai is a director who, for me, it's like masterpiece, 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 masterpiece. And then this latest film that I've been so excited for comes out, Susan May, and I was like, it was good. It was okay. He wasn't anywhere near on the level of those others. If you make enough movies... That's going to happen. Christopher Nolan. Tenet. I really like Tenet. But Tenet is not up here where like every other movie that he's made to me is. And so I think Affleck being so selective is beneficial to him. Because if you mm -hmm. make enough, you're going to have some misses. Even Spielberg has some misses. The, our beloved Denis Villeneuve, guys. I think we all love everything that he's ever made. But like ultimately, if you keep you, if you, if you up the quantity eventually you're going to make something that not everybody you know loves as much yeah totally fair um i do you have any like to sound snobby autorist signatures of ben affleck like is there any qualities or mo like stylistic motifs no. throughout his I filmography don't. i don't i don't think that there is okay. i really don't i don't yeah. think but i like that about him to me he just he focuses on character character he gets movies that have really really great scripts and he doesn't overdo it. Like I was watching Gone Baby Gone the other day. And it also doesn't have a ton of cinematic flourish. Argo doesn't have a ton of cinematic flourish. These are pretty bare bones as far as like you would think of. And yet they're just so locked into their characters and their scripts. They let that do the heavy lifting. And I think that that's, uh, you know, something that not a lot of directors like to do these days. They want to make it look and sound like themselves, like what you're getting at. It's all about like, it's, you know, you know it if you're watching a Scorsese movie. You know it if you're watching a Fincher movie. You may not know it if you're watching an Affleck movie, but it's going to be great. Yeah, I, I would say 
and now that I'm thinking, maybe in my closest comparison, but maybe not as much of a every time he's up at the plate hitting a home run is a George Clooney. And why I bring this up is that his, all his movies are usually just very good. And I would say his only real signature throughout all his films is that they're character-based. Like he gets the character, which is really funny because they're both great actors coming to films through the actors and the story's telling side. And yes, I, you, that he also fits in your, I guess, um, not your rant, but your explanation that every filmmaker is going to have some misses. I think the George Clooney film that he put out a few years ago, the space one, A Sheltering Sky or something. I don't forget the name. But it, it was definitely a, missed. For me, I don't a definitely the name missed. either. That's how much yeah. it missed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but he's definitely put out a lot of really quality films that are just like good films. Like there's nothing too special about well, them. And, They're just and I, really I good guess films. to bring so, it to yeah. back to the sports aspect – we're talking about batting averages. You got Ichiro Suzuki, who hits for contact. You know, he's a guy who will get on base more often than he doesn't. He's got a, he had a high enough on base percentage, great batting average, but he wasn't the guy that you were going to be hitting for power. He wasn't going to be knocking it out of the park. Could he do it? Yes, absolutely he could. But he's not the Matt Olson. I'm thinking about it because I'm a Braves fan. He's not the guy that you're going to expect to like explode off the bat and potentially knock in. Uh, three or four runs. He's going to be the guy that's going to get on base because when he swings, he's already like eight feet towards first base because of his crazy swing. And I think that's what Affleck is. Affleck is your hit for average guy. He's consistent. He's going to be able to provide you a good movie experience, one that maybe you'll revisit, maybe you won't, but you're not going to walk away going, ugh, because of the fact that he's not... 162 games a year guy. He's coming in as a pinch hitter. He's coming in, you know, doing whatever. But I think he he hits for average, and that's a good thing because I think we need quality directors, just like we have actors that we expect to fill a certain void. If they're typecast or whatever, you know that when you watch a Nick Cage movie, you're going to get some zaniness. You are. When you don't, it's a nice change, but there are pockets of that. And you kind of expect it. Same thing with Keanu Reeves. He's got a style. He's got a character trait that he brings into movies that don't quite work for your romantic dramas, but they do work for your action. They do work for your sports. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think when you have an, as an actor, I would think Keanu Reeves doesn't think that, man, he's failed because he can't get all these roles. No, I think he's saying, I'm, I'm making a living and people like what I do for the most part. And I'm going to keep getting roles because people know what I'm capable of. And I think for Ben, for ben Affleck as a director, he's very selective. And I do think, I agree with both of you, that that's why he has a high average of likability. But I don't think it should be fair to say that he hasn't hit a ceiling, that he hasn't hit greatness. Because that's not what movies do. Movies are not defined by their bigness. They're defined by their compelling stories. And are they entertaining? And each one of the movies that he's directed in its own right has been entertaining. And the subjectivity of art, I think, is what makes this so great because we can say, oh, yeah, the town's my, yeah, this, or man, Argo really steps up, but the consistency of what he brings to all those, that they're good, I think is very much a great quality trait to have as a director is that you can trust that he's going to bring you something that's that's good. Totally. Very reliable. I would trust him with a big paycheck yeah, every too. time. Well, that is going to wrap it up for this edition of Feelin' Film. Jordan, Paul, thank you both for joining us. This has been fantastic, and we are so grateful that you got a chance to come on. Hey, thanks for having us on. This is fun discussion. Hopefully we come back and do it again. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Well, next week, Aaron and I are going the romantic comedy route. Uh, we are checking out the 2023 Apple TV release of Ghosted, and it is starring Anna DeArmas, which we absolutely love. And uh, also that guy, Chris Evans, that he's also okay. But no, it's it, I, I saw the trailer for this and I am in love already. I'm excited to see it, excited to have the conversation. So be looking for that uh, this time next week as we are talking a little bit of Ghosted. That's it for us. Everyone, thank you for a great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.